So here's a story. Sometime in the last decade, um, at the time of Hurricane Francis, because this had to do with Hurricane Francis, I came home to I, I came home one day. Clearly, I I wasn't using my cell phone as much. So it was probably eight or nine years ago. I came home and there was a message on my home answering machine from uh, my friend Tamara, who had moved to Florida not long before that. And I pushed the button. I began to hear the message, and. Uh, uh, the message was, uh, this is Tamara. I'm just calling to tell you that I'm safe. Don't worry about me. I'm safe. And Tamara had just recently, just a few weeks before that, been diagnosed with uh, ovarian cancer. And she had had a series of tests, and they had a, had tests to confirm that she had ovarian cancer, and then tests to plan which kind of chemotherapy she was going to have. And she was supposed to have started that week. So I heard that much of the message, don't worry about me, I'm safe. And I thought, oh, praise be, they've gone over the tests and they've discovered that she doesn't have cancer and she's calling to tell me that she's safe, don't worry about me. And the message went on and it said, don't worry about me, even though Hurricane Francis is aiming right towards where I am in Florida. I have friends who live some miles inland, and they've called me, and my house, as you know, is quite exposed with lots of glass, but they've called me and said that uh, I can come and stay with them, so I'm on my way there, and I'll sit out the storm there, so don't call me because I won't be at home, and I'll be in touch with you when this whole storm is over. So during the next several days, I watched the storm on TV, you know, it's it's become drama, and you watch the storm approaching on the on the Weather Channel. I especially like the Weather Channel because I like that the weather people stand out in the weather. They don't have to stand in the weather; they could report the weather from inside, looking out. But it's not drama, so they have to stand out in the weather with the with the raincoats pulled up around here, pelting rain. <laughs> this young woman and the wind is whistling and the, a, a, a tile from the top of a roof flew down and just barely missed her and I'm thinking to myself somewhere this young woman's mother is watching the weather channel <laughs> so I watch the weather channel all through the storm and then tomorrow calls me when the storm is over and uh, she tells me I'm back home I said how was it she said you know It was amazing, she said. Several of people who lived right around my friends had joined them, and several other people who lived, as I do, near the coast had been invited and they came. And she said the storm, as we knew, was all night long. She said, so we all sat in the living room together in our pajamas, and uh, uh, we heard the storm blowing outside, and you could hear it. She said when the eye of the storm got near us, it was like a freight train. It was so noisy. And it was, it was quite frightening. She said, when we really got really frightened, we sat and we prayed. And we prayed for the people all around us because we were sitting with each other and we were you know, at least safe in that room at that time. But we, pe- played, we prayed for the people all around us in Florida and all in the, in the path of the hurricane. 
And uh, then it, she said there was a great stillness when the eye of the storm passed, and then it was over. So I said, um, at that point, I said, you know, sweetheart, when I first got, I'm happy you're home, and when I first got your message, and you said, especially, I'm safe, I thought, ah, oh, they've reviewed your, your, your um, test results, and they found that you actually don't have cancer said, no, I have cancer, she said. I'm the same cancer. But it wasn't what was up for me this weekend. It wasn't what was happening right then. She said, we were all together. We were keeping each other company. We were all in the same jeopardy. The people around us were all in the same jeopardy. It felt better to pray for the people around us. And actually, I wasn't worried so much about my cancer. Praying for other people and feeling connected to them and hoping that we came out seemed more important. And it stayed with me, really, that story, because I think that on so many ways, I thought about the way in which connection lessens one's own burden of pain and suffering. That Tamara told me so many times about how many times it was significant to her that they were all sitting in the living room together in their pajamas, she said, just like people in a party or a family, that they were praying for the people around them in Florida and connected to them, that uh, I was watching on TV and I felt connected to Tamara. I was thinking about the mother of the weathercaster who was watching from somewhere, that somehow all of us in a shared concern about the condition of some people in jeopardy, had joined in a subgroup of the world of the people at this point in time praying for something together. And I think we none of us felt alone. We all felt accompanied. That there's something that not only soothes because it feels accompanied, but also takes your attention away from your particular personal worry. Sylvia faces life. Tamara faces life. What's going on with us? The world is facing life, and one or another worry is threatening this community or that community. If it's a weather-related community or a worry, or an Ebola-related worry, or a typhoon worry, or a poverty worry, a racism worry, any worry that affects a community, which are all happening, Wars, which are affecting communities all over this globe at this point. If we think about, if we say a thing like, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, and I keep in mind how many communities all over the place I could be thinking about and praying for, which would keep my heart awake. It's not pleasing, but it's connecting. And it's consoling. It's in some ways an affirmation of the fact that there is no one here that's separate from anything else. This body-mind organism at this point in time is unfolding with all the body-mind organisms in the whole world, passing from birth through their course to death at this point. And in those moments when I realize that I am part of that big arising and passing away. It's exciting. It's amazing. It's a cause for real gratitude to be part of this amazing enterprise called life. 
And it's the antidote to being caught in the complexities or the worries or the difficulties of my personal little life. I wanted to tell you that story about Tamara. She died of her cancer a couple of years later. And uh, I thought during the time of uh, the years of her dying, she did that so well. She's one of the three founders of New York Insight. And she was such a diligent practitioner. And she was a great source of inspiration to me about how much wisdom, and really the wisdom not only that everything that's born, there is, we are all of the nature of uh, old age, sickness, and death, or in her case, not such old age and sickness and death, that that's not a mistake that happens to everybody. And it will for each of us in our time. But that it could be just what's happening. She had the most amazing capacity, even till the end. I will tell you this one little more story because it just floated up into my mind. Her, in, in the, her account of the um, hurricane uh, was of a dramatic event that she was able to think about other people and their needs. Uh, actually, her um, partner at the time uh, had, uh, had come up to New York for some thing that he had to attend to. So he wasn't there with her, but uh, she did live with her partner in those last years of her life down in Florida and was sensitive to him also in his life, taking care of her, in her as her disease progressed. And she was telling me about how she managed. She said, sometimes she said, I really get, it gets, it gets me, I can't stand it. She said, I, I really realize that I'm going to die soon and I get frightened and I feel terrible. She said, so I go to meditate and I go into my meditation space in the next room and I sit down and I work on finding my breath. And then I find my breath and I stay with it a little bit. And then at some point I say to myself, huh, I'm really breathing. I'm still alive. Okay. And she said, and then I go back in the living room and Jim and I watch the Marlins game on TV. That's it. It's just a plain thing. It's just a plain thing. You restabilize yourself. You finish with the hurricane, you go home. You finish with the panic attack, you go watch the Marlins game. You just do what you need to do to stay balanced, and you go back and do your life. That's what we're going to do the whole life. We're going to have hurricanes and sicknesses and frights and fears and anxieties. I wanted to do several things in this talk tonight. I wanted to tell you about tomorrow just because I've been thinking about her. I wanted to especially tell you that line in the beginning of that story where Tamara said, I am safe, don't worry about me, I'm safe. I think that the only thing that really is a source of enduring safety for us, all of us as human beings, is our benevolent heart. When you think about life, we can't, it's, it's very precarious. I mean, we're, we're live beings on a, on a, on a, in a life where things happen. We don't all die when we're 70 or 50 or on a certain day or whatever. Things happen, often out of order. Accidents happen, sicknesses happen. 
it's surprising, this life. You can't really be safe. Sometimes when I've taught metta and uh, people say, I, you know, I don't feel comfortable saying, may I feel safe as the first of the metta resolves. I say, because I really get to think about it all the time. And I think, how could a person really feel safe? Who could feel safe in such a precarious world? And what's more, who could feel happy? Because, you know, all these things are going on. And I really want to say that the amazing thing is that we can feel safe. I, you know, in terms of being protected from physical harm, I don't think that magic happens if you, if you practice metta. We're still, my friend Joseph, my friend and my teacher Joseph said he would, had just begun his metta practice and was walking down the street and a barking dog flew out of a house and came and menaced him, barking away. And he did metta for the dog that bit him. Anyway, so, you know, it's, it's not a, notwithstanding all the stories in the scripture about the Buddha who did such strong metta that elephants bowed in front of him, Joseph's dog bit him. So that it's, it's not about that. And I don't know that we could be happy always. I think we could feel content. I think we could feel safe in the um, safe in the possession of a heart that is wise and understands that what happens, what's happening, is the only thing that can be happening, and that the only response to it is warm and gracious attention. Sometimes we can change things, and we can cure things, and we can fix situations, and sometimes we can't. And the ability to say at any time in one's life when it's not something that we're happy about, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And to be able to really say it and feel it in that tone of voice, it's not what I wanted, but it's what I got, is huge wisdom. That's the kind of heart that we have. That's the kind of safety we, that, that really we could feel safe with. We have hearts that could be wise and responsive and sympathetic and compassionate. So I wanted to talk about that in general and uh, tomorrow in specific. Somebody today, we were talking in a, one of those one-on-one meetings that we have, we talking about practicing these metaphrases. And... Uh, I was saying that uh, it was the practicing the path of kindness. And uh, this person gave me the alternative phrase, which I really like. She said, we're cultivating the heart of inclusivity. I love that. I love it better than kindness. I really think inclusivity is the, 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 the word that best marks what we are trying to do. On several on several levels, but one of them, if my heart is, my, my friend Sharon Salzberg wrote a book called A Heart as Wide as the World. If my heart were as wide as the world, it would have everybody in it. The, I'm looking at the Metta Sutta that's down in front of me. I love the Metta Sutta. So one of the things that I carry with me from place to place to teach, I mostly don't take notes. So I figured out what, when I'm there, what I'm going to talk about. But the only piece of note that I take is the Metta Sutta. 
because I could talk about it over and over and over again and read it over and over again. When I read it today, all day long, thinking about what I was going to talk about, I had all kinds of new meanings to many of these lines, which I've read, seriously, hundreds of times. This afternoon, who knows if it was tomorrow, maybe I'd think something else, but this afternoon I thought that the three most important phrases in this, da-da-da, you want to know what they are? You want to guess? I gave you a hint already. Aha, that's the very hint. Thank you very much. Omitting none, that's a really, that really means omitting none. It's really, it's, it's so touching to me when I teach metta to a, a, a new group of people who don't know about it. People get a little worried sometimes as they begin to hear me talking about it and they say, you know, I'm a kind person. I really love everybody. I think about the whole world. I love the whole world. But you're not going to ask me to really think good thoughts for, and then they say X or Y or Z, <laughs> some person of infamous repute or some family member that really has hurt them substantially at some point. And the thing is, when they say, you're really not going to ask me to w- try to wish well for them, I am. Because the thing is, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with them. It has to do with liberating the real estate of your own heart so that none of it is mortgaged into a resentment or a grudge. Negativity towards anybody or anything is suffering. It's not even the cause of suffering. It's already suffering. It's the mind crinkled up because it can't open to that. I think about that so much, omitting none. So you want to guess at the two other phrases that I think are the... Phoenix, you had one idea, what? Hmm? No? That's exactly, Christine, thank you very much. Da-da-da, that's really wonderful. Not holding to fixed views, primarily the view that there are other people. That these are my people, these are your people, uh, these people are different from those people. Everybody wants to be happy and peaceful. Everybody wants to make it. Let's even talk about every human body. That's what we know about. Everybody wants to come home and find their family intact and wake up in health and celebrate a birth and memorialize a death and comfort people when they're sick. Everybody wants to have enough to eat and enough to feed their family. Everybody is just like me. On Wednesday mornings, when um, there's a long-running class down at the bottom of the hill, I, anybody here is coming to that class? I, there you are. Um, one of the things that we do always is we sit for a half hour, 40 minutes, and then at the end, I say, in uh, just a few minutes, I'm going to ring the bell. And it's my experience when I sit quietly for a while and my own mind settles down, that when I'm not preoccupied with the worries and the concerns and the aches and pains of my life at this moment, my own mind settles down. What, I, what comes into my mind is the people that I know who are in circumstances that concern me in some way. Uh, they're not necessarily frightful con- circumstances. I'll give you some examples in a minute so you'll see that. So I say to people, 
Um, would you like to uh, mention some circumstance uh, that you are thinking about these days in your mind? I often say, um, I say something like, um, I'm thinking of uh, uh, my relatively new friend, George Hauser, who's 98 years old, and as we speak here, is in a nursing facility in the Santa Rosa Friends community, um, taking a long time to um, really pass out of this life. And at 98, his mind is still very, very clear. And uh, he was a prime mover, along with Dr. King, uh, of the civil rights movement, actually, in the, uh, the decade of the late 40s and 50s, even before. And uh, last week, uh, his daughter, who comes to Wednesday morning, brought the film Selma to the nursing home, and they played it in his bedroom. And he recognized, I mean, he knows the story, he can talk about it. He's old, he's very feeble, but his memory is good. And... Uh, so he said that, so I said that, and then people use that, uh, that, um, uh, oh, what do you call it, that formulation. I said, I think I'm, I am thinking about my friend so-and-so who is having such a circumstance. And then someone will say, I'm thinking about my son so-and-so who uh, has just come home from his second year at college because uh, his... Um, uh, He's just realized that he really has an addiction that he has to work on before he can go back. And someone else will say, I'm thinking about my daughter Lois, who's uh, about to have uh, uh, twins, and I'm hoping that the delivery goes well. And someone else will say, I'm thinking about my mother Pearl, who this and that. And I'm thinking about my great aunt Sophie and something with them. And I don't call on people. I just sit there, actually look down and listen. And it goes by itself for a while. And people say that formulation, I'm thinking about my so-and-so who has this and that. I'm thinking about my so-and-so who has that and this. And when we talk about it afterwards, then I make some just wish for the well-being of all beings and that everyone who is a comforter be comforted in the comforting. And that everybody be comforted in this world be a place of comforting each other. And when I'm finished, I always... I'm more or less stupefied. I sit there and I think, hmm. And I say this often. You know, we are now at the halfway point in that morning meeting. It's an hour, two hours long. Now finished at the one hour mark. And I said, you know, I'm supposed to make a Dharma talk now. But that five minutes is always the most powerful Dharma talk I could possibly give. Here are all of these people saying, I'm worried about so-and-so. I'm thinking about so-and-so. I'm rejoicing about so-and-so. Sometimes people say, I'm thinking about my nephew John, who has just gotten acceptances from MIT, Stanford, and Harvard, and he's terribly concerned about which one he should choose. <laughs> and you can feel in the room that everybody does, ha, huh. it's finally like something good. You know? and, and the Buddha said there are 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes, but the truth is that when we're talking about what's on our heart, it's usually the 10,000 woes, not the joys. They work themselves out. Thank you. But, 
but it's, it's, it's a whole Dharma lesson to listen. What's the biggest Dharma, I think, of all of it, is that nobody's got nothing. I, you know, not everybody talks, but the generally held sense and the generally discussed point is if we all had to say, I'm thinking about... Often people say, I'm thinking about myself. And they'll say what their thing is. And it's very touching to be in a room full of people. Everybody here who's been in a 12-step group knows that it's very um, deepening and um, engaging for someone to say, I'm thinking about myself and the fact that my relationship is in trouble and I'm hopeful that we're trying to work on it, that it's going to work out all right. And nobody even knows this person, but you all of a sudden feel, whoa, I've been taken into this person's heart. And I feel them in mine. And the lesson that also comes along with it is we don't have to know people to feel empathy for them, to resonate with their story. We hear the story, and we have an aunt, and we have an uncle, and we have a person next door, and we have somebody. For me, it's so satisfying to, to really feel that human beings are strung for compassion. We are, and we are strung for altruistic joy. We hear somebody got into three Ivy League colleges and they're worrying about which one to go to. You could think, well, it's a great joy to be able to think about that. So it's very, it's very consoling for me to think it's actually true that we all have that heart of goodwill. So we were talking about what's the three phrases from the Metta Sutta. Did you figure out the other one? Now I have to remember what the other one is. Oh, the other one. I'll give you a hint. When I first studied the Metta Sutta, if I first read it 30 years ago now, I thought to myself, I was, um, I don't know, I, I'm embarrassed to say, but I said, this, this sounds like a Nike ad. It says, just do it. It doesn't say how to do it. That was my first take on it. It says, just do it. Love all beings no matter what. Wish them well. Ready, set, go, start. It doesn't say how. Is <laughs> what I thought. But it, it's completely not true. It does say how. Every single sentence says how. Every, it's the entire Dharma. I am going to read it to you right away and say, these are the three parts of the Dharma that the Buddha outlined. This is the complete Buddha Dharma in a, in a pricey form. And in one particular line, it says, how are we going to love all beings? Because it says all the things that you can do to be able to love all beings because our natural response as you've been finding out from your metta practice and all the Brahma-vihara practice we've been doing, is that it's easy to love certain people. Oh, yeah, this one, and even these, and even these, and okay, those. But over here, well, I'm not so sure about that. This, never would I think about that. So that's the way we're strung. But to be able to say, actually, you could. And there's one sentence that tells you how your mind would be in order to be able to do it, go. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings? Actually, I love that line, but that's not the line I'm thinking about. 
because that's actually how it would be. That's actually how it would be. But there's a line that says what the condition of the mind has to be other than it's a woman's mind. What the condition... <laughs> By the way, if I could rewrite the sutta, I would say just as a parent. I'd be, you know, I'm a little bit wanting to change that. Just as a parent. You know, just as a parent could. Or just as a parent might. Because otherwise it's troublesome. Not every parent has been the most parenting. It's, a, it's, 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 it's nobody's fault. It's causes and conditions. But it's troublesome to think. Anyway, there's another line. Christine, what? Huh? Go. Aha, there we go. Ta-da. In gladness and in safety, in order for the mind to be able to override all the hesitations it has about this one or that one or that one or this one, to override all the antipathy when the mind is filled both with safety, so you relax, and gladness, a buoyed-up mind that's really appreciative of how amazing it is to be an awake part of this whole process of life living itself. That mind in gladness and in safety, says, sure. Both because it realizes in the wisdom of that open mind that everyone is exactly the only person that they can be, doing exactly the only thing that they can do, and so there's no one to be mad at. It's just a set of circumstances to be considered. It's also a mind that's wise enough to know that if it holds anybody out, it inhibits its own full heart from being available. It's again mortgaging the real estate of the heart. Imagine if we went around in gladness and in safety all the time. The mind would be a splendid neighborhood. There would be nobody that we would be afraid to. There would be no bad neighborhoods. I really love those lines. Let me read it to you. I'm going to tell you it's got three pieces. This is the whole Dharma. By the way, somebody pointed out to me that it says, this is what should be done. Sounds like, um, like very sure of itself. First of all, I'm pretty sure that the Buddha was pretty sure of himself. But <laughs> even if it... Um... I used to have a t-shirt, a sweatshirt that somebody gave me a long, long time ago that said, uh, because I'm the mommy, that's why. Which is the answer to, you know, why should I do it that way? You know, who made you the boss? Or how come you get to choose? That's why. The Buddha maybe said it in exactly these terms. But I think about what does the this mean? This is what should be done. The this is a pronoun that that covers the whole entire sutta. This is what should be done, the first 13 lines or so, are uh, the, uh, the reiteration of sila, of ethical behavior. The middle of the sutta is practice behavior, changing the mind, transformation of the mind and heart. And the end of it is the cultivation of wisdom. This is what should be done by those that are, one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble not conceited, contented, and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, 
not proud and demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the mind would, that the wise would later reprove. That's the piece on Sila. I actually love that. I think it's, um, I actually like that line very much, not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I think the wise is us. That my experience has been that when I do any period of really serious practice, what comes up in my mind after I settle myself down are, um, is a spontaneous moral inventory. Do you notice that in yourself? Sometimes it's just, it's little things like um, so-and-so called me and I forgot to call back. Um, I wonder if I was a little too abrupt when I was talking to my colleague at work today. It's the mind playing over stories that it wasn't quite finished with. One of my friends who's a neurobiologist said the brain has uh, that the neurology is geared to finish unfinished gestalts. Would you ever notice that if you say, someone says, what was the name of your second grade teacher? And you think, oh, can't remember the name, can't remember the name. I'm thinking, thinking, thinking. Fooey, I can't remember the name. And then an hour later, you think her name was Miss Jones. And you have the feeling that some little editorial assistant was running around in your brain for an hour <laughs> looking through all the databases to find who it was. And it, I, it doesn't, there isn't uh, an editorial assistant running around in your brain. But the brain is geared to take that job and run with it because it's an unfinished gestalt. You have a, it's unsatisfactory to have an unfinished answer. I love that. You just give it a job, do this. In terms of your practice here and other places, the same thing holds if you sit down. Sometimes people say, this is in response to the people who say, you know, I have this problem in my life. I don't know how to solve it. I could do A or B, but now I have a lot of time on my hands. Should I sit here and think through the answer? And, I, and mostly I say to people, uh, I, I think it will be more helpful if you sit down and say, may the clearest understanding of what I really want to do at this point arise from me in the course of this sitting, and then let it go, and then just sit. Uh, if you could have figured it out by thinking before this time, you would have figured it out. What you are hoping at that point is for um, some sort of revelation, some sort of creative new blending of everything that you know. You can do that uh, both with situations in your life, you can do it um, as I have, a lot. Sit down and say, may the clearest understanding of impermanence arise for me. And then just put it out of your mind and sit. May the clearest understanding about suffering. May the clearest understanding about non-self arise for me in some way in this sitting or in this day. May wisdom arise. It's interesting, isn't it, to think about was the wisdom just lurking there somewhere and just waiting to be invited? Or does that incline the mind to just sit more clearly so, and more um, um, with more intention and more zeal? 
I haven't said the word zeal in a long time. It was, it was a word my teachers used to use a lot. And I thought, that's a, a strange word. But the word zeal and the word ardor are words that I have started to use a lot with practicing. Practice with zeal, practice with ardor. When you think particularly about metta practice, it doesn't mean um, tense metta practice, but it means intense practice. Really, really bringing the attention. You know that idea about moral inventory, things coming up. Sometimes things come up for me that happened so long ago that I have, so to speak, forgotten and that actually aren't troubling me in my life and uh, on a day-to-day basis. And then I might be somewhere and have some experience, and a long-ago experience pops into my mind of some moment in which I did something that I didn't feel good about. A friend was driving me from a retreat center in the northeast um, to wherever I needed to go, to an airport or a train. Anyway, at some point, we came around spectacularly beautiful fall foliage roads, I'd had a sudden view of the Hudson River, and I was feeling really good. I had liked it the way I had taught. I was in a very high mood. My mind was very relaxed, spectacular scenery. There's the Hudson River. And in that expansive mood, I look at the Hudson River, which I haven't thought about in many, many years. And all of a sudden, I remembered um, having behaved impolitely to a date on a high school picnic on a tour boat up the Hudson River 60 years ago. <laughs> and I felt bad. And I, I haven't been thinking about it constantly for 60 years, but somewhere in my mind, it was filed in there, and the view of the Hudson River. And I really am awestruck by that. You know, where are those filing cabinets? <laughs> that, because they are part of our equipment, and it's part of my... So you think to yourself, well, maybe this isn't so good, this meditation with an open mind that I could remember my whole life. But I think it is good from the point of view when I remember that. First of all, you know, I was a child. I was 15 or 16 years old. And I can look at it now and I say, I wish I hadn't done that. But, you know, that's what 15 or 16-year-old inept adolescents do. And maybe it adds a little bit of vigor to my commitment as a 78-year-old to be really careful not to hurt people's feelings and to try really hard not to. Maybe that just tips the mind a little bit. I think we're really fixing the mind the whole life with intention. It's not to really feel terrible about yourself, but to every moment of, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, really changes my mind into the future, so I might not. Wishing, this is the part about, okay, if you can do that, then you feel good. The Buddha called that feeling good about really not having done the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, which has the name the bliss of blamelessness, which is a tremendous phrase the bliss of blamelessness. He said, if you had that, you would feel safe and glad. 
wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. I love that. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. You know, to be involved in wishing well for all beings really liberates us from getting trapped in the uh, smallness of our own non-existent separate self. I remember that uh, Joseph Goldstein years ago used to quote some commentator who said, apropos of being aware of a sense of self or tyrannized by a sense of self, because the sense of self is always the representative of some need. He said, if there's any, this particular commentator said, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. That just pass over everybody? (laughs) To the degree that the sense of self has manifested itself, me and my and my story, the me and my always represents some, something that I need. If I don't need anything, the sense of self disappears. There is no suffering. But if I could entirely get interested, any of us, we were entirely dedicated to the well-being of other people. Mother Teresa used to say, when people said, how can you be with these dying people, not only dying, but in such a terrible condition, most of them, most of them being brought in from the street, from really living and dying in such squalid circumstances. And she said, you know, when I look at them, I only see the face of Jesus. You know, that if you are so completely, really taken by the suffering of the world and the need of the world and your own ability to respond to it, you would be really liberated from all the distress of a separate self that's frightened by the world and disgusted by the world and confused by the world and lusting over it. Let no one deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings? I have a whole list of stories about people who cherished all living beings and thinking about which ones I wanted to tell you. I just told you about Mother Teresa. Where is my... The, the Reverend Willie Barrow. Do you know the Reverend Willie Barrow? She died last week. She was 90 years old. She was a fighter for civil rights. Ms. Barrow organized her first civil rights demonstration when she was 12 years old, protesting the fact that she and her fellow black students had to walk to school in her homeland and hometown in Texas while whites could ride the school bus. 
She went on to conduct sit-ins and boycotts with luminaries of the movement, including the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, and joined in the 1963 March on Washington and the protest two years later in Selma. More recently, she voiced concern over gun violence and the dilution of the Voting Rights Act. She was born Beatrice Taplin in Burton, Texas on December 7, 1924. Her father was a farmer and a Church of God minister. When she was 16, she moved to Oregon where she studied theology, organized a Church of God group, and worked as a welder in a shipyard where she met Clyde Barrow a fellow shipyard worker. They married and moved to Chicago. She helped um, Jesse Jackson found Operation Push, People United to Save Humanity, and succeeded him as executive director when he sought the Democratic presidential nomination in the 1980s. She was a fiery advocate and fierce adversary She encouraged young people to stay in school. She pressed major corporations to hire more black workers and executives under the threat of boycotts. Ms. Barrow was a mentor and self-described godmother to young activists, including the future President Obama. After her son Keith announced that he was gay, she publicly embraced gay rights He died of AIDS in 1983. She she was married for 56 years. She wrote a book called How to Get Married and Stay Married. Among her sage prescriptions, don't try to make make your mate over. It can't be done. (laughs) She mentored men and women alike, but she was an unabashed feminist. She was a friend to Coretta King, Dorothy Haight, Addie Wyatt, you know, when I I was telling my colleagues a little bit about her, because she just died last week, and I read this in the paper, I was saving it to read. People who, People, I, I think in order to do something, I, here, I'm going to start the sentence again. One of the things that interests me very much are the people who are able, when they notice suffering outside of themselves, to dedicate themselves totally to it, sometimes even at peril to themselves or really taking all the energy of their life. And I'm thinking it, it has to be that it's a combination of things has to be a combination of what you learn from your parents. I, I, I noticed that her parents were, her father was a minister in the Church of God. has to be the fact that her parents cared enough about her to get her out of Texas and send it, enable her to go, to go north and go to school. People have to have some kind of a genetic constitution where they're prepared to go on. Because I think we're all moved, and some of us really do things. And I think a lot about it. There have been articles in the paper recently about how do you get to do altruism? How come some people are altruists and other people not so much? And people don't really know. But I think it's going to turn out to be something of a combination of 
being moved by the circumstances of others and having them so that they really become a compelling issue. And also that somehow, uh, personally, one has the energy and the time and the resources to make a difference, or the commitment to make a difference. Thomas Merton was really upset when, after he had uh, entered Gethsemane, his, col- his friends and former associates at Columbia uh, were all on the front lines working with spir- civil rights and marching and uh, really being in the forefront of uh, the demonstrations. And he spoke to his abbot and he said, I don't feel good. My friends are really there on the front lines and I am just here in, the, in Gethsemane and I feel I should be out there. And uh, the abbot said, um, you have no idea of how, what a difference your prayers can be making. And I remember reading that for the first time 30 or 40 years ago, that line, it's in the seven-story mountain. And being impressed with it, did the abbot really think that Thomas Merton's prayers were changing what was going on? I, I don't know. Uh, I think Thomas Merton's prayers, which he wrote about, and then was the most highly respected and broadly read Catholic visionary of the 20th century, made a big difference in Catholic thought and made a big change in the church. So who knows? We all have different capacities. When I was thinking about this today, I was thinking there was a, a plane crash oh, 30 years ago probably, just took off from um, Washington Airport and fell in the Potomac. And it was just after CNN had opened as a network, so they on the spot, CNN covering it. And you could watch cars coming across the bridge over the Potomac and uh, people getting out to see the, the plane wreck that was right there. And some people throwing off their shoes and jumping in the Potomac and it was cold and it was winter and there was ice floating in it. Some people actually died in their attempt to save people. Other people didn't jump in. I'm thinking a lot about, I don't think they were better or worse people. Some of us can do that, some of us can't. I think it probably has something to do with the level of body anxiety. I'm telling you all of this because I'm probably in the category of people who can't. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I would do under any kind of a circumstance. But, um, and I've all my, all, most of the examples I've given have been really monumental, big examples that have to do with big social issues. Recently in New York, a man uh, on a subway platform had an epileptic seizure and fell on the tracks as the train was coming into the station. And another man who was waiting for the train with his two young sons leaped into the tracks, pushed that other person down in between the rails, because you can, lay on top of him. The train came screeching into the station and before all these horrified bystanders and stopped. And they could hear his voice come out and say, we're okay. Help us out. Somebody take care of my boys. 
And think, what happened in that person's mind that they did that? They made a big fuss about him in New York. And he said, I didn't think about it, I just did it. And I really, I admire that so much. But I, I you know, I, I, and because I'm, I'm a pretty timid person, and I don't know. I want not to have Mother Teresa and um, Thomas Merton and this guy on the subway station to all be the people that I have to be, because I'm me. And, and uh, somebody told me in the last year or so that uh, you need to be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. <laughs> but that's, a, that's really about it. I can't be other than me. I have my genes. I come from long lines of... Uh, Oh, I have my. I have to stop because it's eight twenty-nine. I I I, had, I, I saved a, a, another article from the newspaper last week about that the uh, descendants two um, two centuries two two or three iterations of descendants from survivors of the concentration camps have different brain chemistry from other people of their same age that. Uh, the level of fear and terror that their grandparents or great-grandparents sometimes lived with not only altered the family um, story, but altered the family genes. So who knows? A friend of mine wrote a book called Rescuers that I brought to show you. So I won't read to you, but it's a story about the people um, during uh, the Second World War who at the peril of their own lives and the lives of their family and children and uh, hid Jews in their basements or build false walls so they could hide them behind them. Um, some of my family hid in, in, a, in a Polish forest uh, for two years and, uh, and lived through that time and came and told about it as part of my memory as a child of listening to them. But this, this particular book is about people who uh, actually successfully harbored Jews fleeing for their life. And their uh, photo essays, the two women who wrote it um, are a, um, a writer and her partner, a, f a photographer. And um, they're really stunning portraits of regular people. And the essays are essays about regular people. And they're not all like each other. And they're not all pillars of the church. And they don't have the whole same background. <coughs> and the only thing that they have in common is they all had more or less the same answer to the question why, when people came to your door asking you to save them, uh, did you, at the peril of your own life and the life of your family, why did you uh, take them in? And the answer that they had in different words all the time, but the same more or less meaning, was I couldn't not. And I am very touched by that. I'm thinking to myself, the whole world is in peril now. We could just all stop and take care of each other. We could literally and figuratively not necessarily take people into our house, but take them into our heart, champion all the causes of people who are being oppressed at this point. Do whatever we can. 
I give myself room to do whatever I can, which means to teach about it, to tell about it, maybe to write about it. I don't have the physical courage or stamina to be on the front lines of things. But I can do what I can, you can do what you can. What if the whole world said I couldn't not take care of everybody else? We have this thing about I, uh, everybody, uh, in the, in the metta practice we think about our family, our kin, our next of kin, our best beloved, all the people we recognize, and then all those other people that we don't recognize. And we're probably wired to be taking care of our kin. We're probably wired to recognize our kin, because that's what animals do. I look around in the field right next to the horses at the bottom, and the cows are having babies. And the cows know which cow is their mother. I mean, they follow that cow, and that mother cow follows them. So we probably have that genetic coding to know who is our actual biological kin. But this whole planet is our actual family. And that strategic piece of thinking that's going to allow us all to say, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering and do whatever we can and need to in our personal lives to have that happen. So I need to stop. I could tell a whole bunch of more stories, but I won't. I'm happy with the ones I told. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.